Welcome to the show. My name is Eric Wright. I'm your host for the Disco Posse podcast. And in this particular episode, which is a great conversation with Daniel Cooper. Daniel is the founder of lolly.co and they are solving problems that you have that you may not even realize that you're you're sort of in the throes of facing around business automation and process automation and they solve very human problems and very technical problems and merge them together super cool the lightning fast path to business productivity and automation in fact actually daniel's the author of a book called upgrade which the tagline is the lightning fast path to business productivity and automation but more than anything daniel's just a fantastic human i really had a great time in this conversation in the meantime in order to make sure that you want to talk about ultimate protection, ultimate preparation for your business, got to give a shout out to my sponsors, which include the amazing, amazing folks over at Veeam Software. And I say this because they got you covered, whether it's everything you need for your data protection needs in the cloud, on-premises, virtualized workloads, bare metal workloads, cloud native workloads. Oh yeah, you're running the hybrid world. Everything's hybrid. Protect your hybrid stuff with a hybridly awesome solution. So go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. That's how much I love them and they love me. I got my own URL. How cool is that? So vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Let them know that old Disco sent you over and they'll get you hooked up. They got a really cool campaign going around. We got reInvent coming up. Lots of cool stuff. So go check it out. vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Oh, right on. Speaking of protection... Don't just protect your data at rest and data in flight. Data in flight is a real problem because you are probably on a dirty Wi-Fi as we speak. So make sure you can do good things for protecting your data and your identity. You can use ExpressVPN. Very simple to do. Just go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash Disco Posse. I'm a fan. I'm a user. And ultimately, as you think about places where you need to protect your information, we're continuously facing the onslaught of digital identity theft and lots of stuff that's that's threatening to your livelihood and, and your personal information. So let's keep it at bay and go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash discoposse to do so. It's, uh, it gives you a little bit of a taste. You get a bonus, actually. You get a, a free month, I think, or something like that. But anyways, they hooked you up. Go do it. Uh, oh, right. And Diabolical Coffee. I, uh, I love Diabolical. Diabolical. That's even hard to say. I love it. I should have come up with an easier say, name to say. Diabolicalcoffee.com. There. I said it. All right. This is Daniel Cooper. Enjoy. This is Daniel Cooper from Lolly Co. And you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. It always sounds so much nicer with the uh, the Cambridge tones to the uh, the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I need to yeah. get you to voice over all my intros from now on, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much, Daniel. I'm excited because this is near and dear to me. It's stuff that I work with both in my direct day to day work, and I do startup advisory, and I help a lot of folks out, and I've been a longtime fan of automating my day away whenever possible so that I could get to stuff that's meaningful, really kind of mm-hmm. f- sort of push away the mundane stuff. And especially in the area that you do, which is a lot of like you automate a lot of things and you help to guide folks through that journey. 
you are founder, you're an author, you are prolific in your content creation and your activities. So for folks that are brand new to you, Daniel, if you want to give a, a quick introduction, a bio, we'll talk about Lollico and we'll talk about the book because I'm excited. You've got the book that's coming out. It'll be yeah. as the time this launches, it'll be almost exactly the time. So we'll have links, of course, to to upgrade, which is going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to being clicking the buy button the moment it's published. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, welcome one and all again to the disco posse podcast i'm very uh i feel very uh flattered actually that i can be here talking to everyone today it's, it's fantastic so i'm the founder of lollico um we are a, a bpa or a business process automation company uh, it's a really boring term i didn't come up with it some really boring person at a big consultancy firm probably came up with it uh but what we really do day in day out is uh, two things. We help companies understand their business processes and the holes, the air gaps, the inefficiencies. And we help them recraft those in a meaningful way where everybody's on board. And then what we do beyond that is actually then look to automate away the really boring, mundane, day-to-day -day stuff that no one really likes to do. So I don't think I could be more succinct than that. Um, but as you said, I do have a book coming out, which is exciting. It feels like I've been doing it forever. Um, it's always good when the podcast host forgets to uh, turn off his uh, ringer. Hey, uh, eh? there you go. <laughs> Apologize for the yeah. background noise there, kids. Yeah. What, what you don't know is I just rang Eric there to throw him <laughs> off. Um, I'm going to turn my phone off now. What's he saying? There? Um, okay, cool. So, uh, as I was saying, um, what was I saying? We were talking, oh, the book. Oh, yeah. Ironic book, thing is, yeah, it, yeah, it, that's exciting. It's, yeah, don't write a book. It's taking me longer to edit the book than it did to write it. Because uh, you get <laughs> this point where you, you, you finish it, you go, oh, we're done. It's all done. Uh, and then you have a, a, a quick realization that you should edit it because you start to think, oh, what, what did I start? What was at the beginning of the book? And was it the same tone at the end? And you start to worry, so you go, okay, I'll do an edit. And then it gets left to the bottom of the pile. So the edit process seems to be much longer. Um, so there is the book, of course. Uh, and uh, you will hear me and see me on other wonderful podcasts, not as wonderful as this one, but there are others. So that is a very quick overview. The uh, I can I can speak from experience, even in doing you know middle sort of length books and and short form like twenty five to forty page uh, publishing myself. Good golly, it is humbling how much like you think I've. I had one book that I did. It was about 55 pages and I, I called out, I was just, I rage wrote it. I literally just spent a weekend and I just hammered out 55 pages of content. And then I spent, as you said, three weeks paring it down and overthinking every word and finding the right ways to, to fit it all together. And it's uh, anybody that tells you that, you know, they say, everybody says like you, you've got a book in you. Yeah. That's most people do, but they, what they can't do is get it out of them. And that what they most certainly can't do is get it edited in a reasonable amount of time and get it to the market. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny how it works. I mean, I made the classic mistake from the, the very beginning being a, an engineer where I said, well, how many words do I think I could write a day? And let's be really conservative on that. And just back of a napkin, I said, three months, I could do this whole thing in three months flat. Uh, and here we are maybe 20 months later <laughs> <laughs> but i'm looking forward to it so i mean i hope that the extra time that i've spent on it beyond the uh 
potentially uh, naive three months that I first envisaged uh, will mean that it's a better book. But we shall see. Uh, yeah, we shall see. The important thing of you know what what the content of the book is, in fact, that you're you're pouring yourself into this and a lot of lived experience, a lot of work that you've done in the field solving this. It's very certainly this is this is why writing the book is often more difficult because you spend so much time and effort doing these things and getting people through this process to then go back and document it, just like with anything, with any systems process we have documentation is the last bloody thing we do right we yep. just like we kind of master the art of doing the thing and then you say well what if i had to hand this off to somebody then you go back and you sort of document the process so it's ironic i would say that in looking at business process automation and all of these things it's it is really and truly humbling what happens when you have to write it down and actually assess what the process looks like to then automate it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a reason why when we're going through education that they don't just get you just to do the thing and say, right, next thing. And you, yeah. so there's a whole method to, to education and it typically revolves around your reading, your writing There's a lot of repetition and it's the form of writing things down that seems to take quite easily with us. Uh, for, for most of us, I'd say, actually, when it comes to memory. I know for me, um, I've always had a, I've always had a thing for exams where I seem to do okay because I have a really good, good way of memorizing stuff and studying, always had a method to study. I suppose that's where I am now, right, where I have a method and a process for everything. Um, but I think it's a really, really important point, yeah, like you bring up. Uh, that is the funny thing. You know, with all processes, as soon as you start writing down a, you know, a standard operating procedure or if it's going to be a, a flow chart for a process map and you start to expose the inefficiencies uh, and things you hadn't thought of and the what ifs and the if else's and all of the wonderful complications that is life. I think this is the, when when it comes to process automation, especially just like what even seems like a mundane thing, it's it's so simple. Right. It when you do it all the time, you very easily forget, which is why automation is such an important part of being successful in in just about anything, because it's not just about the speed that you which you can do it with automation. People get confused. They think that that's actually the outcome. The outcome is consistency of outcome and understanding the repeatability of the process. Right. That's I, I really find that's the first thing people think of is that. Well, I'm just going to make this thing go faster. Well, you can make bad things go faster too. It makes you <laughs> yeah. stop and actually measure out. Because I used to do this all the time. I would like write server build documentation. So I've got to build servers, and I would do you know probably two or three a week. So I get rather good at it. And I wrote the documentation, which I never read because I thought I knew better than the documentation. And then what would happen is because I'm human, the next time I would build it, I would have the document sitting on the table beside me. I would skip five out of the 40 steps because I just thought I knew them already. Mm -hmm. And in the end, when we go and do a back check, you realize like, oh, yeah, I forgot to do this thing. But then when I was forced to actually automate the process, it made me go, oh, oh, good golly. I realized I was doing four steps that I didn't even include in the documentation that I just did off the top of my head. And by forcing me to get rid of me, it yeah. really, really helps my growth 
of understanding that I am the bottleneck. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. I, that's that's the thing. I think especially with um, you know founders and leaders within companies, and it, it isn't just founders, and it isn't just C-suite. You know, everyone's a mini founder. Everyone's a mini leader. Everyone has their own kingdom within a company, no matter how small. But often you will be the bottleneck, uh, and it can be a real problem. Absolutely. And the thing is. Companies that scale have repeatability and almost a quality assurance guarantee. So by that, what I mean is, if you look at, let's say, um, pizza, right? Domino's pizza. A margarita pizza from Domino's is the same no matter where you order it from. A Big Mac's a Big Mac, whether you're in Germany, the UK, or... Alabama is exactly the same thing. And, and those companies are able to scale massively because of the processes involved. They can just chuck the book at someone and say, cool, here you go, have at it. And that's the important part, right? But often we're too busy being busy to bother process mapping or bother right. writing a standard operating procedure, but it slows us down. And your exact example is a really, really good one because especially if you're building a server, there's a lot of complexity there. You know, you have to install the OS. You have to install loads of stuff on top of it. You know, you might require, I don't know, it could, it could be any type of stack, right, with a with a server. And it takes you to miss one thing. And then to find your one thing, you have to do a load of console commands to find it, digging about, trying to work it out, scratching your head. And actually, you've just wasted a huge amount of time, probably twice as much in that one instance if you deliver it in the SOP. And how many times have we all done that? I know I've done it. Um, so it, it is important, but it, I think it can feel really frustrating when you are a super busy person, uh, when you have to write these processes out that it slows you down. Yeah, the concept of slow down to speed up became something I didn't learn until I was, I'll say, sort of intermediate or senior in my function at work. And that, and maybe this is something I'd love to to get your thoughts on, Daniel. Is is this a human behavior thing like does how many 23 year olds really dig the idea of process automation versus they want to be the ones that are effectively carrying the baton like is it is there a weird sense of ownership that changes as you evolve in your understanding of your impact at an office at work or whatever i yeah I think yeah, you know, it actually doesn't really matter the age. You, I encounter these people quite a lot. Where what you're seeing is resistance from people. Resistance is a funny emotion, uh, and your brain can come with all types of reasons why you shouldn't be doing something or why it shouldn't be done this way. You hear it a lot with "We've always done it this way," right. so a really common one. Uh, and and it can happen in any age of that someone is. You know, so you can find someone in mid fifties or someone early twenties. They're all saying the same thing. A lot of people find it difficult to let go, even if they're completely stressed out uh, and they're completely overrun with work because that is their own mini fiefdom. And they, they don't want to give it up because they feel that they'll actually be almost a spare part and a spare wheel. And it's hard for people sometimes to actually let go of it uh, and trust in their their employer. Uh, they're not just going to get automated and let go immediately. But this is the, a big misconception about what we do. People presume that we're there to take their jobs. So it's a really important part of what we do that we have to reassure people saying, look, we just want to take away the boring stuff so you can do more of the stuff you actually want to do, right? Do you really want to be typing that into a spreadsheet every single day? That's quite boring. Um, but it's very common is, is, the, is the short answer. And this is a 
we'll always have jobs because we'll always have humans, right? Like we, in this process, it, it is, it's a strange dichotomy of the sense of control, yeah. the belief that by doing it by hands, that by touching the process and by being yeah. involved in it, that you are controlling it. But in fact, it's the reverse. Right? Yeah. And it's, uh, humans are funny with this because we find, uh, we find it very difficult to project forwards uh, or even really backwards in time and understand the concept of change. So we're very good at living in the present, something we've always been very good at. A good example of this is, I don't know if you have kids, but whenever, whenever my wife was pregnant, it seemed like it was a million miles away when she was going to have the baby. And right. you turn around and the baby due next, due next week, and then you have a mad panic trying to get all your stuff done really quick. Uh, but it's the same thing when it comes to trying to look at projecting time and saying, where am I going to be in the future? And what would technology be? And what's going to happen and you get really worried about being replaced there is a lot of talk about people being replaced by technologies and people no longer having roles but this isn't the first time we've seen this this has happened a number of times in history there was have you ever heard of um the luddites there's a term ah uh, yes yeah right? i love this term get for folks that are fresh to this uh, if you want to walk through the story of it as well it's important yeah yeah so uh, the, we use luddite as a I suppose like a, a negative term now when we say to people there yeah, it's a bit of a pejorative but <laughs> yeah it's okay yeah. though I'm, yeah I, I call myself a luddite too so i figure i'm yeah. okay to say it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i do this all the time it's like you luddite but no i don't really uh but the the point of it was the, the luddites it was when there was a, a point in history where um mills and especially wool and weaving was like a big big industry in in the uk throughout the the north and the middle of the country and what ended up happening and in farming as well was, was part of this luddite rising and what happened was they started to introduce machinery that would allow them to mass produce and people started some people started getting laid off and people's hours were cut and people become very worried I mean, bearing in mind at this point uh, that type of employment would see people working for 12 or 14 hours a day uh, and getting paid terrible wages and sleeping right. in awful conditions. So I want to put that in there for a prerequisite to this whole thing. Um, and what happened, there was a, there was a, they, they think he may actually have been a, a, a fantasy character called General, I think it was, I want to say Lud, Luddite, but I don't think that's right, something along those lines. Anyway, General Luddite was his name. And there was a whole mass uprising where they were burning factories and there were riots. And in the end they had to get the army involved and quell the whole uprising. And it was really quite serious and it was causing mass disruption uh, in the entirety of the country. The ironic thing to the story is that when you turn around and look at two or three years later, there were more jobs than originally were actually right. being, being, getting put away because they then needed people to actually be at the docks loading the chips. They needed people in the, in these factories, actually working with these machines, bringing the wool in, bringing the textiles out. So actually, it it was very, very successful and, and led to whole other jobs. I mean, you wouldn't expect to see farmhands, you know, 30 farmhands on a farm now would be extremely rare. I mean, I would imagine the, the US is just like the UK where you might have a, a family who have a farm uh, right. and they may have acres and acres and acres of land, but they have machines now that are handling this. But other jobs come up. The invisible hand of the economy comes in and creates new roles for us. Who would have thought that Eric Wright would be making and and creating servers and worrying about has he 
or has he not installed Apache configurations correctly? Right? That's, right. We wouldn't, that's not something we were worried about at the time. We were worried that you know the Wright family were being replaced by a, a weaving mill. So I would say to people who are worried about that type of thing, it, it is, it's not an instant thing. We're not all just going to suddenly be replaced tomorrow. Uh, and at the same time, new jobs will emerge. So I shouldn't have been smashing that loom out in my backyard then yesterday. <laughs> yeah. I was probably a poor, <laughs> yeah. poor choice. Yeah. The, the, and this is really the the trope, the sort of fear holds much stronger because it's an emotional sense of some kind of perceived or potential loss. Mm. The idea that you're automating your job away. It's very difficult for people to see the potential for growth more than the potential for loss. And, and in fact, if you look at, you know, even the research work done by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, famously, you know, in, in the book Thinking Fast and Slow, it's much easier to sell something if it's based on averting loss than it is in providing gain. Even if the gain was significantly greater, we as humans were attached to the removal of, of risk more so than, and then this is what happens that if I say I'm going to automate, you know, looming, whatever it is, server building, and you're going to get a better job, they, there's no understanding of it. Like there's no perception of the real gain and so we like we grasp onto this old thing meanwhile as you said what happens the factories now have higher throughput as a mm -hmm. result of that that means they need more people on on the line more people in the office they're actually now training people to be maintenance people for the new robots etc and it ultimately spurns and spawns this brand new whole ecosystem that had never existed because all these people were doing 12 to 15 hour days. That's right. In physical labor. Yeah. I mean, can, can we say now that our working lives on average are better than they were in the Victorian times? A hundred percent, right? We're no longer living in, there's no concept of something called a workhouse. That's right. You know, that no longer exists. And luckily, you know, our, our 10 year olds don't have to go and work in the factory and risk losing fingers uh, because this type of, work is no longer required and and we don't have to be so forceful uh, on on manual labor so it's a really important point but i think though really that what we all should be concentrating on like you say is is how can we actually now move forward and move on to the things that we prefer to do and then the things that are more creative the great thing about humans is we're great generalists right we might not be excellent at something for instance i might be able to play chess i am unlikely to beat deep blue at chess. That's just not going to happen. But the thing about it is I could teach someone else and they could pick it up very quickly. Now, to teach a brand new piece of machine learning how to play chess is actually really hard. As you know, we've got to get huge volumes of data to do this. So we're great being generous, whilst machine learning AI is terrible at being general. Absolutely awful. Um, it just... It just takes so much data and so much learning. Obviously, they're able to be more precise when they do this, but you can't just take a machine that is capable of beating me in, I don't know, Super Mario Brothers, uh, and then and have it then instantly start doing translations from French to German. It just won't work. Right. Uh, it's impossible. So that's the advantage that we have. We're able to move much quicker. Um, so I think that there are many things that machines won't get to for a very, very long time.
It, it brings up a really good point. And we have been lucky enough to have a lot of folks in this area of both AI and, and as they call AGI, so artificial intelligence, which is generally viewed as like what we call narrow AI, mm -hmm. where it's very specific in that it's tasks, like you said. You know, even Tesla's self-driving, you know, in computing and, and the LIDAR yeah. and all that work, it could do all this fantastic stuff, but it wouldn't be able to tell you what song to put on the radio next. It has no understanding of that capability. And I'm pretty glad that it doesn't, right? I want it to be particularly good at the driving bit. Yeah. I'll, I'll put in another system to deal with my music uh, textures that I want for my ride. And then there's AGI, which is this, you know, when everybody says annual, you know, artificial general intelligence and robots replacing us, the immediately the cover of the video from iRobot comes into your mind and you think of <laughs> some machine that's going to eventually gun you down in the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the use of individual specific tools that are very targeted, that each in and of themselves can rid you of bottlenecks or at least speed mm -hmm. you to the next bottleneck. This is a fantastic time to be in the world of process automation, is it not? Yeah, it is. I mean, we're doing some we're doing some great stuff. The entire industry, when I say we, not just not just us here at Lollico, but re really, what's happening with with all of these very narrow focused pieces of automation or, or AMI or machine learning is is the equivalent of when the wheel was invented. It did one specific thing. You know, a wheel can't do the washing up. It can only be a wheel. It can only do this one very specific thing. Uh, I'm certainly not claiming that the work we do is, is uh, as as important or as groundbreaking as inventing the wheel. Certainly not. But at the same time, I think the point stands that it is really, really narrow, uh, really narrow focused stuff. So the code that we write and the, the automation that we create um, it can specifically do one thing. Um, and it is absolutely determined in that direction and, and and cannot escape the confines of that. It's just, it's just too hard to do. You know, I think when you look at, if we think about how we learn as children, it's incredible when you see a two or three year old learning about animals, and you could show them just images of a, I don't know, a zebra on a screen, and then show them a toy zebra, which is almost cartoon like, and they'll instantly recognise it, even though it's a right. completely different concept. And that's really, really clever. A machine would really struggle with that, very much so. Um, we we just have a certain makeup. Uh, in our minds and i'm certainly not someone who i'm not a you know i don't study the brain so i can't tell you the specific ins and outs of it but at the same time uh, i'm always amazed uh at the way children learn and, and it's very hard to replace that with a machine but yes uh there's some really cool things happening in in automation um and it's a very exciting time on the uh on the subject of children's learning it's another thing is sort of relative comparisons that you don't often put together my, I have a two-year-old little girl. I've got four kids, and my youngest is two, and she's, she's a blast because she says to me the other day because she's two and doesn't you doesn't have that many words yet that she puts yeah. together, and she says quack quack tape, and I have no idea what she is talking about at this point. I'm like, is it a cartoon? Is it a book? Whatever. She's pointing up at a shelf filled with a hundred things. Says quack quack tape, quack quack tape. And it takes me a while to eventually I keep moving my finger around until it points at a roll of tape, which I am like, ah, tape, quack, quack, tape. And I look and it's this dark gray, ah, duck yeah, tape. Yeah. So she, in hearing us say duck tape, hears duck, quack, quack. 
And uh, from that point forward, right? It's that associative capability yeah. that's a very human thing. And then as you now look again across a broad range of systems and tasks, that is also a thing that in the simplest possible form, a two-year-old can say, duck, duck, you know, quack, quack tape. I can look at, hey, I'm doing this stuff with prospecting that's generating a spreadsheet. And I take the spreadsheet and I load it into Salesforce. And then in Salesforce, I'm exporting a report. And that report then goes into, you know, some demand generation system. And I'm like, why didn't we just avoid the route through Salesforce? Like, you know, like when you start to look at the associative work that happens yeah. to an object or to a process, this is where the beauty of humans in the automation and process mapping is where it's like critical. Because if yeah. you just look at any single thing and said, here's the thing to the left and the thing to the right, and here's the thing I'm looking at, you lose the totality of the system and the understanding of the human process. And in the end you say like, oh, well it's because my salesperson has an iPad and it only has this goofy mobile app and that's why we ship it over here. You're like, oh. So we've been doing this thing manually for however long just because my sales rep is in you know, Iowa and he only mm -hmm. has an iPad. <laughs> yeah, but this, this is it. This is exactly why process mapping and you know, working our way through these processes to find the inefficiencies is so important because we are generalists, because each of those steps is going to kind of work. It's going to get to the end result, but none of us have purely focused on each individual step, making sure it's absolutely perfect. So this is the flaw that we have as humans being such generalists is that you had a, uh, the saying, I don't know if it's an American saying or just applies in the UK, jack of all trades, master of none. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's a great example of what we do at work every single day. Uh, and no offense to anyone who, you know, who's been in their career for you know, 40 or 50 years and they say, oh, actually, I think you'll find I am the master of my trade. But what I mean by it is the inefficiencies and in what we do when we're completing tasks. We know what the inputs are. We know what the outputs are. But we don't really ask many questions between that. We, we ask ourselves, for instance, have I got enough input? And often then you have a whole conversation with whoever is passing this input or anymore, and you have a big conversation. But you don't ever think to actually document that. So they have the expectation of what they need to pass you next time. So we'd have to waste a whole conversation about it. And then the output, we don't really even ask the person passing the output to, is that enough? We're just happy to have further conversations. Whilst we're There's a whole waste here going on. And you'll be amazed some of the stuff I've seen. I've seen people um, in, a, in a financial firm receive, have an invoice paid. The lady would then from accounts receivable, would then actually enter it into a spreadsheet. She'd then print it off, <laughs> walk upstairs <laughs> to a lady in another department and put it on her desk, who would then take that and make a summary and email to send to the management in every day. Why? Just why? And they'd have a nice conversation whilst they were doing it. And great. But, you know, this is the thing about being generalists is that business founders, C-suite level, will be obsessed with finding the inefficiencies and shaving things off as they should be, right? Um, because it's money where we're just burning, right? We can just take money to yeah. the car park and set it on fire. Well, it has much better, you know, much more fun rather than doing it this way. But, you know, people who are just generous day in, day out, you know, we don't really think about these things all too much because, well, that's how we've always done things, isn't it? And that's the normalization deviance in jobs that none of us really pick up on for a very long time, unless you're a process nerd like me. Yeah, I've often been the 
the one I used to, I, I used to always get in trouble because I'd be like, so I got a quick question. What, what exactly, why do we do it this way? And, yeah. you know, I remember at one point when I was young, I, I ended up working in a union shop and uh, I wasn't, I'm not, I, I'm anti-union for myself uh, because I was never going to work in a mine or somewhere where my safety was at risk and the union was the only yeah. thing to save me from it. But it was funny that I would sort of think to myself, what if I could do this faster so that I could basically have 45 minutes of each hour free? I only need to produce 150 parts. If I keep at this pace and cadence, then I can go and I can actually, what if I turn it to the right? And I started to always think about these things <laughs> and someone would come along and go, okay, Eric, you're, this is cute, but it just do what you're supposed to do. No more, no less. And, le and we in every part of our job process, especially when we are, there's so many people that are part of a machine, like, like it's a handoff of processes. There are people, like you said, there's that person at one desk who's receiving a thing, typing into a spreadsheet, printing it out. They may not care as much or they can't, they just don't have the needs to put attention to, what if I just emailed this? What if I just scanned it and emailed it upstairs instead of trotting about up the elevator? They're just thinking, I've been told I need to do this every day and I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I think a lot of the time as well, if when people do have those ideas, they'll try and report that to middle management and middle management would just say, get back to your job. Because they, <laughs> yeah. the middle management is just too busy to deal with it. Right. They're also too busy. But this is the great irony. Middle management is so busy because they've got no processes either. And they're just drowning in work. They've got no time to be dealing with this renegade who wants to potentially turn their machines at a 30 degree angle just to see if it's going to be slightly better. And, and I think that's is an inherent problem. So, you know, when you're talking about doing improving processes, um, we, we push for always um, that there's a whole workshop around it. And we pull people into a, into a whole workshop for days on end. It sounds horrific and really boring. We try not to make it that way um, because often People, fit, people need permission from the very top to say, we're going to change this. We're changing the processes. We want you involved, um, which is another important point. You can't just change the processes. It's like doing a kidney transplant, right? checking the donor is a match. Bad yeah. idea. All right? We'll have employees with pitchforks and flaming torches outside the office the next day. So it's important you get the match there and that they are willing to do it. But it's important that everyone is involved. Um, and it's incredible, actually, where you find... Um, what I refer to as normalization deviance between uh, a senior doing their role and a junior as well. There's huge differences in the way they do things that people often don't realize. Now, when it comes to your ideal, the person that comes to you or that should come to you and say, I need Lolico, I need what's, what's sort of a, an ideal persona and an organization that's probably at the right stage where they need to come in and get mm -hmm. some help. Sure. Um, so I can tell you who we can't help, first of all. We can't help small startups, people who just start their business. And the reason for that is not that we don't want to. I'd love to help everyone. Um, but the reason is because when you haven't actually discovered what your process would possibly even look like, it's actually just mental kind of a waste of time you're just doing it for fun and is this there's just a waste of your time uh, but also when companies get too big actually i think then the layers get so deep that if it's not already inbuilt by then 
I'm not sure there's any way to really help them because normalization deviance is so set in that right. it's going to take some severe um, axing to deal with that. <laughs> so we we deal with companies uh, who are hitting a weird glass ceiling. So they've got to a point and they're probably doing a few million dollars and every day they're going to work and they're just grinding and grinding and grinding and they've got no time to do anything else but from that. And then if their wife or husband says to them, hey, let's go on a holiday, no way. There's no time for that. And we need to hire some more people, but we've got no time to interview people. So we're just going to start hiring. Just hire some people. Let's not worry about, we'll sort that out later, yeah, which is right. a horrific mistake. Or <laughs> And this is the problem. And, and they cannot seem to get escape velocity to the next stage. And the next stage being probably beyond $10 million at this point. Those are the people that we help uh, where it just feels so stressful just in the day-to-day -day running. Um, and we help them completely break it all down um, and see the wood for the trees because in their brain, it's just so fuzzy, right? They've got all these processes. They know they should be doing. It feels very foggy. They're not quite sure how things should work. They've probably got a couple of people working there. If they left, they would be in huge trouble. Yes. Yeah, and, th and this is... And, and thank you as well for sort of setting the floor and the and the ceiling as well on the the ideal client because we often get hung in in this problem of people say oh this is great you know process automation I'm I'm starting up a brand new email list and I've got I'm I'm putting yeah. together a Shopify store and I, I want to see about optimizing the process you're like what's your yeah. average sales oh, we're doing about three four sales a week. Yeah, don't well, worry about it. Just do the work. Don't worry. Yeah, just keep just, going. Just keep going. Just concentrate on the money. Just earn the money. Yeah, just do it like that until it becomes a problem. Then start dealing with it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. So we, we can often get into the analysis paralysis and process planning of, yep. uh, you know, I've, I I personally, I love to dig into the, the I'll say conceptual optimization because mm -hmm. I'm, I do it as a, day-to-day -day gig. I work in systems all the time and I've always looked for that. But at the same time, it's it's hard to remember sometimes. Like, I don't need to worry about the specific location of my my water bottles because of the speed at which I can navigate but behind the dining room table into the credenza to get them. You're like, okay, this is not the place I should be spending my optimization efforts. <laughs> yeah. How about yeah. on the thing why I keep forgetting to pay the credit card bill? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. There's an optimization I can solve. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, I think it's all about as well trying to work out the symptoms. You know, you might have many symptoms. You know, you might have a broken arm, but you might also have a paper cut. But let's not worry about the paper cut for now. It might be easy to solve, but let's really not worry about that. You have a broken arm. Let's deal with that one first. So one of the very first things we do uh, when we meet founders and, and C-suite level is we really just say to them, tell us where it hurts. Like right now. It, immediately the first thing that comes to your mind what's the problem and they'll tell you straight away because they yeah. know where the fires are and it's really quite painful um so w when we process workshop stuff we won't we won't really cover every single thing it's impossible we'll map a huge amount of processes at first um but we prioritize pain over everything else what's the most painful stuff what are the processes that we hate to do and we all vote on them silently so that everyone votes anonymously so there can be no politicize agenda to anything uh, ah, and we, yeah, we solve yeah. those problems first um, when we come to do all this it's really really important because often things will go overlooked but then when you delve into it we had someone the other day and they um they're, they're a great company they produce they produce content um on mass um so if you need content written for your website you go to this company and uh they use google drive in the background for all of their stuff well the problem is 
they write four and a half million words a month. That's massive. That's three thousand. That's three thousand articles. I've got my calculator ready just to calculate this. Uh, and we worked out that every time they produce an article, they need to file it in the right place. Now it sounds really simple. You just drag and drop it to the right folder. How long can that take? Well, they have <laughs> yes. to set right. They have to set all the permissions up and add, you know, add the writer, and they have to add the client, and then they have to move it from what they said was a production folder to the client folder. Go into the client folder, find the ID, move it into there. Then they have to remove the writer. Re-add the editor, then add the client. And we got them taken before the stage. So how long does each one take? And then they say, oh, in total, they said 11 minutes. 11 minutes for 3,000 3, times a month. Are you kidding me? That's, absolutely, it's madness. that's an important piece, right? Is the scaling of the minutes turn into months yeah. If, yeah. You are on, if you're at any kind of scale. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, the staff and the employees were saying, oh, it's just kind of an annoying thing to do. Uh, and then we went through it. I said, guys, this is 450 hours a month. Like even <laughs> even at like, what's the minimum wage in, this, in the States or in the state of, are you in the state of New York? Uh, New Jersey. Uh, New and Jersey. I think it's $15 an hour. I'm uh, th somewhere in that area. Yeah. Wow. $6,750 a month. Is that right? Where are we calculating? 450 times 15. Yeah, a month, $6,750 a month. That's a lot of money over the course of a year or two or three. Uh, and then it's solved really, really simply. We'll just dive into the API and we'll just do it all automatically off the back of the client code. Job done. And, yeah. it, and it seems insane. And when we turn around and say, well, look, actually, it's costing you $200,000 every three years. Why don't we just spend whatever it is, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 to automate the entire thing so we don't have to look at it anymore? For founders, they're backflipping, right? And oh my god, look at all this saving, and it's and it's right, but it's it's these types of details that we miss in our processes. So, if a company of any type of size, they're going to be missing these things um, because they're not looking in a granular level at processes, but also we're not even starting to say how much time does this one task take here, this one small piece, and adding all right. those bits up, and it's, it can be a an absolute game changer. The other thing that's good in that you're approaching it via a workshop of everybody that's involved in the process, it means that mm -hmm. you can test because sometimes not every optimization results in a positive result, right? They quite often we can believe we could say, oh, well, I'm going to shave 11 minutes off of this thing, you know, just to pull that, mm -hmm. that minute duration example. But in the end, you know, some things actually can be a negative result or it, it just it ultimately can move to the next bottleneck and it, yeah. it's very interesting that if you don't involve like you said everybody along the process flow then the boss just says i've uh, where at the end of it they're going to get the support and say excellent i'll have two hundred thousand off of my books <laughs> in 18 months and that's all that they see. And then the workers then ultimately, maybe they don't actually free that time up. They spend it on other things. So you have to look and say, what's the, what do we do now with this time? Where do we apply? Yeah. Do you actually get that time? Yeah. It's yeah. A, I, an interesting it's a really, thing. It's a really good point. That's a really good point. And it's one that really people should focus on once they do save the time is where are they going to reapply this? Where are they going to refocus it? My opinion is always back toward the customer. So how can we increase customer support? How can we make build those relationships in a better, more meaningful way with our clients and customers to make them really love what we do? 
that's only going to benefit everyone. What it shouldn't be is more busy work. Right? That, that's that's just a really really bad move. But it, it can happen, sure, in our in our workshops that in some processes you don't find because there are there are, just to be clear, there's two types of time that are involved when we're looking at a, a process, and one is the individual steps, how long these take. This right. is the completion time. But there's also what we call the cycle time. And the cycle time really means from the very input to the output, what was the time? So it might be that we have uh, a action point where we have to email something to a client and we now have to wait for it to be returned. It might take two or three days for the client to return it. So suddenly your cycle time might be four days. So improving that can also be a really big benefit. But actually, you don't gain anything financial off the back of that that's quite obvious to begin with. It can actually improve things much later on down the line because it helps your sales cycle and right. it also helps your reputation and your net promoter scoring, all this wonderful stuff, which leads to further sales. But it's a really important point that you brought, bring up. Sometimes we just may automate things for the sake of automating them because, oh, isn't it cool that it now works like this and there was actually no real benefit? And it's something that concerned us for a long time um, when we were doing these workshops. So it's we have to try and focus all of our internal staff here at Lollico into making those savings for a client because really it could end up just being a bit of a pointless and fruitless endeavor. So we have to, on our side, do what we call the Lollico promise to our clients that if we do a process workshop for them and they pay whatever money it is, let's just say, I don't know, $10,000, that we make a 10x return on that for them via a plan to automation. And if we don't find the 10x in saving, then the whole thing was free. And if it's free, then the consultants don't, their bonuses get affected, right? So <laughs> suddenly everyone's really quite keen to make sure the client finds the savings, which is the best way to go. Yeah. Well, in the, as you said, it's an interesting thing of, even when we look at the often savings is really revenue in disguise, right? So we looked at that example where we, just you know, sixty-seven hundred and fifty dollars a month that we're saving, and any good CFO could probably find a way to hide that in a good tax return, right? Like they could get rid of that and not really have it be meaningful. But what they couldn't do by that means is take that four hundred and fifty hours of labor, and that's a full-time person. And I can put them, so basically I've literally got 10 weeks of human labor mm -hmm. at an average startup work week, let's say 45 hours. <laughs> I could start another startup with that person, right? Like I could put mm -hmm. them onto another task. I could have them doing other things. It is not simply of like free time, do more things. It's do more effective things, which ultimately are revenue affecting. That's the real goal of this, not just a cut down the number of minutes I'm spending on this stuff and, and incrementally shave off dollars. It's very much about doing meaningful things with the time and money that you're getting back because of this process. Yeah, absolutely. You'll ever, otherwise it ends up like a private equity firm. Private equity firms have an awful reputation with business owners. Oh, they're just going to come in and they're going to rip my business apart. They're going to get rid of everybody and then we're all going to hate them. And, and it's the funny thing about it is, is that, when you read between the lines of a joke, there's some truth in there. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not being nasty to anyone who owns a, a, a private equity fund, but, uh, you know, that's that's their job, right? Is to buy companies, repackage them, sell them, and often that's really finding cost-saving measures. 
Um, and that's not what we're about. We're not about, whilst we want to find you the cost-saving measures and improve your bottom line, the key to it is, is that I fundamentally believe that pushing all of this new time towards client and customer contact, you're going to make so much more money. And that's the absolute secret to it. Um, I mean, I always say, when was the last time? I mean, have you phoned your bank recently, Eric? Uh, I mistakenly, I I, <laughs> I right. was stuck having to do it. It was a horrifying experience. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the PTSD yeah. on that. <laughs> That's all right. So it'll be the same as in the UK, I imagine, where dial one for this, two for this. And yeah. it's ridiculous. And you can't actually speak to someone. And it's all robotic. You know, it's not really, it's not machine learning. It's just recorded voices and horrible stuff. And they're always asking you, can you, you know, to in three words, describe what your problem is. And you find yourself just shouting down the phone, trying to describe it. That's um, right. But my example is, wouldn't it be nice to phone the bank and speak to a human or even have a bank manager? Imagine that. Um, they don't exist in the UK anymore, I think. Um, it used to be that way. You'd have a local bank manager, you know, whoever it was, Sarah, Bob, Dave, whatever. That's and right. you could speak yeah, to that yeah. person. And they, and they would know you, your business, you know, know your wife's name, your husband's name, and, and you could, you know, have an actual relationship. And they'd they their their purpose was to help you and win more business for the bank by having that relationship. And that's just gone now. Uh, and I always question why. What is everyone doing at the bank? I'm sure they're all shuffling money in the background and you know dipping in and out of the market in the futures and and who knows what. But the the point of it is the retail area of banking is just useless now and we don't want our businesses to go that way we should be talking to clients more i know that my business is built that way now it's it's actually a very apropos mention you had about the retail banking sector because i've noticed a sudden thing recently at my particular bank of course let's take the last 18 months with covid that kind of blew up anybody's plans for how to do in-person experiences you know yeah uh, well for a while but even at that what I found was that when I go to the branch that actually, in, at least in the United States now, they're open seven days a week. Mm -hmm. But let's say 10, 12 years ago when ATMs became a thing or ABMs, depending on what you call them, the goal was to ultimately replace a teller with a machine. Like that was to move people over and they would actually they would actually make it punitive to use the human. They would charge you a fee to go to the in-branch and do a deposit and they started by like walking people to the machine and doing it at the machine yeah. and it was seen punishing and punitive and then we all thought as well well that means that they're going to close the branch they're going to get rid of people whatever and they did they really and truly did do that mm -hmm. for a long time but now on the other side of this they've realized they're now competing with digital non-brick banks Mm -hmm. And they're increasing the human experience again. Yeah. But for non-optimal stuff, right? Where you have to sign forms, deal with things that are longer term and sit down for loan applications. And, and they're, I think, rediscovering that there are very human processes that need to occur. And they can now do it because that person isn't going ka-chunk, 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 sign, sign, stamp, stamp to like put a hundred dollars into an account. They just slide it into the machine and they say, great, Daniel, what about your mortgage, right? What are the options you've got available? And yeah. they can now actually embrace very human experiences that are needed to give back and then 
they've realized the benefits of the automation at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that capitalism is is great in that often what people would perceive as their strength is actually their competitors seeing as their weakness and they can pick up on it very quickly. And that's certainly been the case with retail banking where suddenly these new online banks have emerged where they don't have any physical locations. So they don't have the overheads so they can accelerate faster. Uh, and at the same time, they can just outmaneuver them at every single turn. Yeah. Uh, and it's of no surprise. And also, you know, being a technology guy, I'm sure that you and I can, if we start thinking about what's happening in the back room of the servers and the machines that banks have got, imagine the technical debt that they've got there, the horrors of that. <laughs> it's a lot of, Absolute a lot, of people, horror. a lot of people sweating and nodding along right now with yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> God. I would hate that. I mean, I, I know obviously there is there are um you know, I'm trying to think. I don't know why my mind's gone blank. What's the what's the programming language that was invented by the US Navy in the, like the 1960s that a lot of the medical and banking industry is still using? Um, one second. Oh, these people are screaming into their phones. Yeah, right. right. Apologies. Hang on, hang on one second. <laughs> Apologies for my mechanical um, keyboard. One second. Bear with me. But this doesn't normally happen on a live show. That exactly. That's why I always. But I, what I enjoy about this is just this experience, right? That you're you you when you want to think about the stuff that makes all this occur. It's still incredible, the technical debt. It's not even, at this point, it's not even, it's like credit default swaps yeah. on technical debt. Like we've got yeah, yeah. debt upon debt and we're selling insurance it, on the debt. It's awful. I've, just, I've just found it. I remember the lady's name, the lady's name who, who came up with the language is Grace Hopper and it's Cobble. Ah, yes, Cobble. yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. They've got like old school tape machines running away in the background yeah. because they can't pull it off of this because it's so vital to the infrastructure. They'd have to turn everything off at some point and they're terrified. I mean, you imagine trying to explain to you know, the head of HSBC. Okay, so we need to move away from COBOL. And they say, okay, what's COBOL? Okay, okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll start from the beginning. <laughs> you know, and, and this is the problem because, you know, as, 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 as IT people, I don't know about you, but if everyone's ever got a printer problem, I'm the first one people ring. And I say to me, listen, <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly. know what's wrong with your printer. <laughs> yeah. when, I, when I worked at an insurance company in tech, I would get people like, oh, hey, Got a quick question for you. So I got this like weird tooth problem where like, I mean, like I have, I can't help you with you. Like, is it covered? Can I get my kids braces counted as a bunch of, you know, filling visits? Like I can't help yeah. you with that. I can tell you that what the system runs on and how many servers there are and wh what data center they're in. But I, <laughs> like, it, it, it is exactly funny. right. So you've got, feel for, you've got a feel for these engineers at these banks who are dealing with this. But this is what allows all the new banks to outmaneuver them. You get to start from a clean slate. You can hire right. a load of people who are, who are ex-banking engineers and developers and say, what would you do if there was a clean slate and we didn't have all this horrific technical debt? And then give you all these wonderful ideas and spill all this information for it. They'd be desperate to tell people at their, wherever they were, not just HSBC. It shouldn't mean about HSBC. It could be any <laughs> company. But the point of it is, is that you know they're excited and it's new and they can outmaneuver everyone very, very quickly. Uh, and I, I think they've done a really good job. We use um, a very modern online bank and we went to them for, for two reasons. One, um, because they just make it really easy. Um, if we want to open a new account, there you go, instantly done. Or do you want a new card? There's a virtual one. We can send a, you know, a new physical one. I don't need a physical one. What? Just doesn't no need. So I can have as many virtual ones as I want. But the great thing is, I had a really good API as well. Good luck getting right. to the API at the traditional banks. That is a mission. 
Um, they really don't want to give it to you as well. And the documentation is awful. Um, so for us, that was a real game changer. And it's just nice there to be able to in-app or, or in, on-platform um, be able to ask someone for help and they're there. And you have got phone support if you need it. Um, and you don't have to go for a million and one robots to get to someone. So it, it's, it's great. And it's a really smart way of setting it up. And it's just a really, really good example of, I hate to use the term, but digital transformation uh, in, in an industry um, where people are just replaced overnight. And I don't think actually the retail banks really saw it coming. I thought they they thought it was just kids. They're not going to get a banking yeah. license. That's what they used to say. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look at, you know, the... And there's, a, there's an interesting... As they go through the switch, it's a painful period of resistance on both sides until eventually... You know, and it's like sort of like the crypto thing, right? Everybody's like yeah. all the traditional yeah. banking sector are like, no, crypto, crypto yeah, is yeah. naughty, naughty. And they get very angry about it and they're fighting and they're going to their government and they're they're sort of petitioning to get it done until all of a sudden that very same bank suddenly offers a crypto, you know, option. Yep. And suddenly they're like, we're the first in the industry of the major banks to be able to do this. And they're very proud of it. And like, I... Uh, 12 months ago, I saw you lobbying in front of Congress to you know, regulate the stuff. And now that you do it, you're super proud of it. And you're looking to rapidly advance without regulation. Like, you don't need regulation. We got this. We've got to figure it. As we see those newcomers come to the industry with first principles approaches and just saying like, yeah, I don't have the legacy. I don't have anything. I'm just going to come at it. I'm going to solve this specific problem. Yeah, and then the big machines—they suddenly they they play some catch up. It's yeah. actually a beautiful, you know, sort of dance you see it when it when it yep. does come to fruition on the other side. It's a painful period of transition, but you know where we yeah. get there. Crypto is a funny one because I think I'm still. I speak to people about crypto, and and I think a lot of people still, you know, in their 30s and 40s are still saying. Is it going to be a big thing? I'm trying to convince my dad about crypto. <laughs> yeah. Man, good luck. Good I luck. Remember He's like, yeah, it's ne never going to work. No, this this doggy coin. Ne no, you know, Bitcoin. <laughs> no, no one's going to bother with that. That's silly. Um, but the thing about it is, is that actually, this is going to. I I fundamentally believe we are so early in this whole journey with cryptocurrency. Uh, right. And and for those who aren't really listening. The equivalent here is in the 90s, if you or the late 90s, very late 90s, early noughties, if you could, noughties is such a British term. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's actually, it's actually perfect. I, we, because we don't have a term for it. The, you know, it's awful. It's awful. It's awful. <laughs> uh, but anyway, in the, in the early noughties, imagine if you could invest in an Amazon. I mean, the, the money you'd have to put all your money into it. But the difference here with cryptocurrencies isn't you're buying the next Amazon. You're not buying the next Tesla. What you're buying is a protocol. So if you don't know what a protocol is, HTTP or HTTPS, this is an internet protocol. You couldn't have invested into that if you'd have wanted to. It was designed to be semi-decentralized. You can't, just can't invest into that. But the thing about it is, is here with this new protocol, you can. People are going to build some incredible, and they are already building some incredible things on top of the Ethereum network. Uh, yeah. And I think that it is going to absolutely explode. Um, and I will, I, I would bet my house on it. I'm that confident um, that we are seeing what will be 
the next massive, massive technological change um, that any of us have ever seen. I mean, it is the, it is this, I think it is the equivalent to, or if not bigger than the internet. You, the, the funny thing is we, the, I'll say the, the Luddites of the crypto, you know, world, right? The people are saying like, no, 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 don't get involved in it. It's, it's, it's volatile. And I'll say mm -hmm. just like any investing, especially that's very speculative, you mm -hmm. have to basically bet money you don't want that you could lose. And so as a joke, <clears throat> when I was going to, I go to Las Vegas usually for a lot of conferences. Mm -hmm. And every time I go, I so I'm going to take a little bit of money and I'm going to just say that I can afford to lose this money and I'll put it in some slot machines and just have some fun while I'm there for a few days. Yeah. And it goes up and down and I win sometimes, I lose most of the time. I'm pretty sure I don't average it out because I don't want to know. But I didn't go to one event and I thought to myself, hmm, I had $400 earmarked to throw away. Let me buy $400 in Bitcoin. And that at this point is worth about $6,000 because I yep. just said, oh, why not? I've literally done no other major investing in it, but it moved around and it went down to, you know, $100, then up to 1000 then down to 800 And everybody keeps saying, oh, this is it. This is the peak or this is we're heading to zero. And in the end, it is speculative. It is wild. But yeah, as you I said, it's, it's, it's not this go isn't the thing we're actually doing. The thing we're yeah. doing is we're setting the protocol for the future. It's just that we're we're attaching a value to it in the interim. Yeah, I mean, look, I could be wrong. It's heavily documented now on this podcast, so I hope I'm not. Uh, <laughs> so the, the point of it, it, it won't... It, there are too many people now who are contributing to the networks, I think, for it to go backwards. I think it has passed right. the point of no return. That is for sure. But also when we look at how early we are in this, how hard is it at the moment to go into your local burger joint and buy buy a burger with Bitcoin? It's pretty it's not it's not easy. It's pretty hard actually. Right. Um, you know, how hard is it for 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 you to transfer me, you know, I don't know, point one of a Bitcoin right now. It's actually some people say, oh it's quite easy. Is it? No, let's be honest. Is it as easy as doing it with our bank account? No, it's not. So I think once we hit that point and there is mass adoption, I don't think there's much escaping it, actually. It will just take over. And people are already now starting to, countries where they're seeing high inflation and runaway numbers are starting just to switch to Bitcoin. Um, yet the actual take-up we're seeing for the amount of adults in the Western world who are using it is very, very low. We're talking single-digit percentile. Right. Yeah, how many people in the US are using the US dollar? Everybody. That's right. Yeah. Right. Well, this is the this is the funny thing. And I and I as a North American, so I'm Canadian living in the United States. And yeah. I, I I'm the first to point out the real arrogance that we have as North Americans in talking about the world, meaning North America, right? It's, <laughs> and we talk about, you know, and interact systems and all these different systems of, of transfer. And meanwhile, while we weren't looking, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, but we're fighting over trying to get, you know, some kind of in-person system of something or other, there is a system called M-Pesa. And this was a way that people in nations, it was predominantly in African nations, where they could literally through a text could just say, here's my M-Pesa account and they could transfer money and you could buy a burner phone and because they don't have banks. 
So there was this world of the unbanked, as they called them. And they suddenly, all of these vendors, you know, in people who are in India and Pakistan and, and the regions where they just didn't have access to banks, they suddenly could sell a some kind of, you know, thing to somebody through a mobile transaction without a bank. And it was amazing that this was broadly accepted and like hundreds of thousands, potentially to millions of users of the system. And meanwhile, in North America, they're like, we'll be the first to market with this something. And you're like, I, I think they've actually, they've solved that problem over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It's all, it's all about the belief in the currency. Right. If right. we all stop believing the US dollar is worth anything, suddenly it's in big trouble. Uh, and that goes for any currency. Uh, but it's quite interesting that the movements we're seeing in, in cryptocurrency and the, and the adoption of Bitcoin across many different countries. And it's interesting to see as well now, I think if you'd have looked back five, seven years ago, if China had outlawed Bitcoin mining, I think the likelihood then is that it would have ended the experiment. Right. But now they've ended bitcoin mining and everything seems to be okay which is that's right interesting right and now we're seeing networks like ethereum instead of moving to from they're going from proof of work to to proof of stake which is a massive change massive um and it's a really really interesting point and i think that we are on the cusp of some serious things happening here uh, and we are not that far away from seeing ease of access to the currencies if you want to call them currencies uh, and and ease of use for everyone technology wise then leading to something very big happening um it's close i feel um but we shall we shall see <laughs> well and and i mean i i'll be the one to circle back on on what we came here for right is that interacting with these systems of record and systems of money and systems of transfer they are there is no physical option you are systemized or you are not participating, right? And this, it talks about the strength and the need of optimization and automation because without it, you just simply can't participate in this world, in this exactly. new world, right? That's right, exactly. I mean, for us, it was a question of do, as a company, do we want to have some holdings in cryptocurrencies? The answer was yes. Can I be bothered every single month to go and go to do all the, okay, we'll buy the cryptocurrency, buy the Ethereum, we'll go and stake. I can't be bothered. So instead, we just automated it. One of the reasons why we have the API from our from our bank is that we can do that. So we have the API from you know the cryptocurrency brokerage, and then we have the same from our bank. Just automate it. So every month, 2.5% of profits are just tucked away in cryptocurrency. Tough to think about. And it's enough of a small bet where if we're wrong, it's not going to kill us, right? We could have right. just said that was that was booze money that we just didn't spend. Yeah, because effectively, it's interest rate loss on, on yeah. a credit card, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, never mind. But at the same time, if we're right, and it does, as I believe, go possibly a hundredfold from here, then we are very right. So, you know, it's, it's worth doing. But you're right. Yeah, it's all about, you know, automating that process and how you can do that. So I think that for many um banking and finance is a really really good area to look at um in a system that you can automate with, with systems and processes there's a really good book um that i believe in called um profit first my mike mccallowitz apologies to mike if i've said his second name <laughs> but it's a good book and, the, and there's quite a good book for um business owners in that uh he 
he really pushes for paying yourself first and understanding what profit you want out of a company before then you start adding on uh, OPEX, you know, for the operational expenditure and staff. Right. Because often, as you say, you know, we'll just find the staff to be busy, right? You know, just you just find, you know, like a like a tank full of gas. The gas will expand to fill the void. It was the same thing with with money and companies. You have to be really careful with it. But what was interesting about his point uh, in profit first is that when money hits your first account, it should be split automatically between your other accounts. So that's things like OPEX, taxes, payroll, all these things. And for us, it was a pain to do because every single transaction, take multiple transactions, and then you have to do your reconciliation inside of your accounting systems. Just, op just optimize and automate the whole thing. So much easier to deal with, right? Uh, and then you kind of have a bit of safety the fact that that's happening. So, so I think that's a great example of the type of thing you can be doing uh, and really does tie us back to cryptocurrencies, banking, that whole thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful world when you can focus on what humans must do and what humans do well. And this is the the potential for automation and optimization because you can first you must automate the process then you can optimize it and it begins by documenting understanding and then effectively you you begin to attach a value to it and not just a value in that process but where you can just as we talked before that sixty seven hundred and fifty dollars a month is not just a value of six thousand six hundred seventy seven hundred and fifty dollars a month it's the 450 hours well, mm. I could not get rid of a staff member, but I could put them on automating, you know, my crypto buys with my CFO, right? Like we can then suddenly put them on almost a gig work. In fact, yeah. this is something that I've adopted now because I'm, I'm using a virtual assistant firm, but rather mm -hmm. than just like a, you know, 40 hours a month or 60 hours a month virtual assistant, I have what's called a pod. It's a company called Level Nine Virtual. I actually had Joe Rare, who's the founder, on on the podcast, and and I just get forty hours a month, and it's just their project teams, and so it makes me go like, okay, what's a thing that I can sort of toss at them, and it be around fifteen hours of work, and they're just just functionally solving this problem for me. And the more that I think about using that effectively, the more I think about new things I'm doing and mapping it to the way I can hand it off. And rather than me, you know, just knocking it out for 40 hours a month of doing busy work, it's fundamentally changed the way that I think about what could I be doing at home instead of this yeah. task or whatever. And, and it's, it changed me as a result. Yeah. It's yeah, really I mean, cool. you have to you have to document, you have to create the SOPs to send to them, right? Uh, yeah. Otherwise, they're not going to know what they're doing. But isn't it interesting that when you're working like this, of how much representation that is of the remote working industry and companies that struggle to move to remote, I absolutely fundamentally believe is because they cannot write SOPs. Yeah. They just don't want to. And there's a real lack of trust of employees. So if you can't write an SOP, good luck being remote. Uh, and I think a lot of companies really struggled with it. And that's why they're trying to force people back to the office unsuccessfully, I might add. Yeah, that was the, uh, and it was conversely too, when someone said like, oh, I've been a remote worker for, a, you know, well over a decade. And and so it wasn't, it wasn't shocking to me that I was remote. What was shocking was that my entire team was, and they they had an unfortunate belief that their productivity was measured by the number of meetings they had in a day. Yeah. 
And it was all of a sudden I had a calendar that looked like a losing game of Tetris and it just didn't make sense to me. I'm like, this is the same teams that I was remote from before. They kept busy in the office, I guess this way, but I was doing the thing that I was doing and interacting with them when needed. All of a sudden there was this unfortunate need to like fill every hour. And it was yeah. like, and so I taught them, I'm like, okay, wait till you have to get bloody productive work done and you've got a meeting every other half hour. Yeah. You're like, yeah. This, there's no productivity in that. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely not. But a lot of companies don't measure this and it's it's all about utilization, which is which should be measured. I believe yeah. in most companies you can find a way to do this. Um, it allows us here to have unlimited holidays. Take whatever holidays you want. I don't care. As long right. as we don't all take them on the same day. But the point of it is you can take whatever holiday you want because we have a utilization rate of target of 80%. So what that works out to is 6.4 hours a day on average that you need to hit utilization above. doesn't matter if you do it at 2 a.m. or you know 1 in the afternoon. doesn't matter if actually... You can't really be bothered on a Friday, so you might do it on a Saturday. That's not what's important. The important is the output and the quality. Right. Uh, and for us, that's that's number one. And it's worth looking at those types of KPIs that can indicate to a company their performance and looking to leverage off of those details, not just as you say, you know, do people look busy? And it's a real ma middle management thing, right? Just look busy. That's right. Yeah. And a real culture of presence, which unfortunately was the sense that that was productivity, that you were physically in the office for nine hours a day and then commuting. And the fact yeah. that you suddenly could be at home, enjoying your family, having breakfast with your family instead of having it on the subway, you know, yeah. and the the thought of there's you just imagine how many amazingly happy people haven't had to listen to mind the gap please <laughs> every day uh <-huh. laughs> yeah. they it's yeah. it's out of their vocabulary now it's beautiful because they've got back time and uh i tell you speaking of get back time i know if you if, if you got a few extra just a few more minutes daniel there's one thing I i've got, I can, I've got lots of time i can happy to talk to you for as long as you and i can bear it <laughs> <laughs> perfect so one of us passes out we had we've talked about sort of the ideal scale customer you know mm. large organizations but you do mention in a lot of your work about sort of the the side hustle you know, the individual creator and adopting mm -hmm. some of these processes and policies, what, what's, the, what's the potential for an individual creator, you know, of, or whatever they are, an entrepreneur, a, a single person business to learn from what you're doing, especially with what's coming up in the book? Sure. I think a really good example that you gave earlier on was this VA company. What, what, were, they, what were they called? Uh, Level 9 Virtual. Yeah. Level 9. Level 9. Uh, it's a really good example because what it allows you to do is you can rely on level nine to do good hiring and find good people, smart people who are dedicated, who are going to get the work done, which means you no longer have to do that. So as long as you can write the SOPs and you can work out what you want to do, you can actually push up and pull down your staffing as and when you need it. But if you're starting from a clean slate, although I'm saying, look, just get on with it and just do it. Yeah, do that. Of course, make the money. But then quickly, you can start to realize, hang on a minute, there's a system and there's a process in here that I can start to pull together. And you can keep it really cheap at first. You can start to use off-the-shelf automation tools like Zapier 
which is one of everyone's favorite tools, or IFTTT, to start to automate small things that are just going to make your life a lot easier. Uh, And doing things on these lines just to get you started. Uh, The key to it is, I believe, is if you can try and up your hourly fee, if that's what you're charging, or if you're making, I don't know, red buttons, whatever it is, working out a way that you can be more productive doing the thing that earns you money and less of the admin, the better, right? But you can only do that and scale it by using more humans. You're not going to be able to just automate everything. That's impossible. It can't be you and a load of robots. Not going to happen, which is a shame. Uh, that would be brilliant. Trust me. But <laughs> it would be a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> get that bot. Especially get those Boston Dynamics ones that can do parkour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If they, if they could do that and then file my taxes, it would be spectacular. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, I think you, you have to scale, and that is that is by hiring employees, uh, and that is by getting staff, but you can start with VAs and do it like that. But you need to reduce your admin quite severely. So a really good example of this is, let's say you do, we had to hire recently, uh, and uh, we were hiring for um, and more consultants, basically. And I know that as soon as we put the ads out, it just goes bananas. We received, so we put it into context, we received 650 applications for two positions. Um, wow. So we use... Um, automation software for HR. So there's a few different systems out there for HR that you can use for this. And you can set the whole thing up so you can use minimal input on it. It's that type of thing that you need to be doing at first. Your time is just not sucked in one direction when you're just starting out because you have to keep the wolf from the door. Right? You've got to pay the bills. Uh, it may be that you know this isn't a side hustle. Actually, you've gone out and done this because the company you're working for let you go because they have financial difficulties. You might be decided to go out on your own anyway. But finding more time, as I keep saying, to actually bring back, you know, bring home the bacon is the absolute vital piece. Yeah, and this when we think about the the algorithmic problem on the other side of a lot of that work, right? There's the the pure selection process. I mean, we often we talk about this problem. It's called the optimal stopping problem, right? And it's mm. the like the average number of people that you would in-person interview but then you've got to first go through 650 cvs and figure out which one might be a fit then you sort of cut it down by the time you get into it you're effectively going to hire the the seventh person you meet because of the way optimal stopping works so but you've mostly done that because you've you're so sick and bloody tired of the process because you've been peeling through 650 cvs (laughs) trying to find differentiation And yeah. that's the reason why we fail at the hiring because we spend three weeks in pre-selection and then you have to get an offer out and people versus just like grab a person and, you know, sit down and have a chat with them. And all of a sudden, ah, okay, they're a good fit. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, the thing here is if anyone is now starting to, to build their business, they're thinking, oh, I need to hire my first, my first employee. I can tell you that from my side, I will 100% hire the first 100 people in the company without without exception. Hiring is the hardest thing you will do. It's the hardest thing to get right. But you do need a process for it. It cannot just be, oh, well, I'll just have a conversation with a person. And, you know, if I think they're a good fit, they're a good fit and we'll just hire them. It cannot be that way because you cannot take the risk. If an employee leaves or any company, the average that you lose from that from having to train the next person, fill all the holes in, all this type of stuff, is actually a year and a half's worth of their their actual wage. That's a huge amount of money. Wow. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of 
um, knowledge that departs with that person. You can't risk that. And also, you, if you hire the wrong person, they could potentially damage the business and your reputation. So it's vital. So you have to set up a system. For us, there are two interviews. There is a video pre-interview that they submit to us, and there's a psychometric test. And if those, if you skip one of those points, we won't hire you. And we purposely make it tricky. There are hoops to jump through. So if you you send, if you don't bother sending us the video at first, you try on another. We just won't do it. If you turn to an interview late, I'm sorry, no. And you have to put these boundaries in. You have to try and hire. You can take some shortcuts like we do with the the HR automation. But what it's really automating is it's like a drag and drop Kanban board, right? You drag the thing across and it emails yeah. the person saying, "Hey, good news, you're out through to the next stage." But you have this. You can't shortcut looking at the CVs. It's the boring bit, but you've got to do it. Yeah, yeah, and it's the especially now like that's the the expectation that you can avoid the systems and yet still participate in them. That's an uh, also a a real tragic human behavioral problem where like I don't want to do the work that I don't feel is meaningful, but I want the job on the other side of it. Like this may seem like an odd process that I'm going to ask you to do as you said, like a psychometric test. People are like this really helps us just by a handful of questions really tells you how you approach a problem. So yeah. then the in-person interview is, would I work, would I put you beside me at a consultant's, you know, at a client call? Like that's the real yeah. thing you want to test, but you can't test that unless you have very, there's early upfront, which is super easy to do. Yeah. And, and also at the same time from the, from the other end of the spectrum, it is, you know, you've got someone who's looking for a job. They really don't want to work in your company if they're going to fail. They don't want that. You know, right. they don't want to have that horrible feeling of you having to let them go or them failing at it. That would be absolutely crushing for them. So they want to find a position that suits them as much as you want to find someone who suits you. So there's a really a meeting of minds on this. But it is important that you, you know, put the effort and realize that there are just some things, not that you can't automate them. I'm I'm absolutely certain that we could scan the CVs for keywords and only pull those ones through, automatically invite them to interviews. But every CV is so different and so nuanced that I want to check it because it's so important because it's something right. that I think should not be automated. There's a difference, right? I could do, but I won't because it shouldn't be automated. Yet, move money between bank accounts, I'll automate that because it's really binary. It, it is or it is not. It's true or it's false. But when you look at a CV, it's not it's not as black and white as that it's more nuanced and and there's right. more of a gray area and you need to you need to appreciate that right it might be that someone's changed industries and they've got a massive amount of history in an, an adjacent industry to yours that would work perfectly for you yet the keyword you're looking for isn't there it could well be that so it's it's really important that that, that happens and I, I think if there's anything for a new business owner to take an, into account is be mindful of the things you do automate and the things that you choose not to do often you hear this thing of of you know do something that you know just scaling something isn't the key right do what can't be scaled you know that's really right. important um hr is a great example of that so just be mindful about what you are trying to automate uh, yeah the uh and it's funny too there's so much nuance in the actual person behind the qualifications we you know i've actually seen 
in my own organization, plenty of times where people come in and they, they call it BDR, it's sort of like the, we call them the dialing for dollars kids, right? They, they yeah. get a, here's a set of qualified leads, ring them up, you know, find out, you know, get them, get them a book a meeting, you compensate it by how many meetings you get and, and such. And it's almost in like in tech, it's like help desk in a way that it's, it seems like a mundane thing, but it's actually critical to the business. But I remembered when I got into tech the first time, I was a shoe repairman. I was actually a cobbler. And I got into tech with no background of schooling, but was able to find somebody who said, let's go through a test here. Like, let's take a look yeah. at the system. And what would you do here? And in, you know, I was studying, I was doing the work, but I didn't have accreditation for it. And then I was able to get through this process. So we have this, these BDRs that come in and four of them I know directly are now have now founded companies that are at each of them are at series B. Like, so it wasn't even like they just winged it and started a Shopify store. They legitimately have grown venture capital backed companies and we hired them to dial for dollars. And in doing so, we put them through the system very quickly. They accelerated us and then we helped them to kind of move on to what was appropriate for them. But just by their resume, probably not a one of them would have been marked for anything special. Mm. It's yeah. kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's so important. Hiring is a really, is a really, really tricky one. And I, and I think this, I mean, this is why our very first stage is uh, they sent us a, a video. So the Loom, they sent us a Loom.com video, yeah. first of all, um, because for us, you know, you can, we can't teach personality, but we can teach skills. This is really important, especially in consulting. Yeah. So talk about irony that uh, you've chosen Loom in, in, the, in our Luddite, uh, you know, uh, mentions yeah. earlier on here. That <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I remember one, I'm, I'm at a point in my life now where every job I get, I won't have sent my CV. And it's, it was funny, the last time we were going to hire for somebody, I was changing roles and the HR team were like, can you do us a favor? Can you send us your, your resume? Because it appears we don't have it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I actually never sent because I was, you know, I met the person who was going to hire yeah. me and I got introduced to the founders and I went through all these interviews and then, you know, we signed contracts, but there was no like go to the website and upload your doc file. It was like uh, it was all done by referral. And most likely I'm far enough in my career that that's how every future job will be gotten. Hmm. So it's uh, these looms of the world are fantastic because it yeah. can get you to that type of discovery. And then the CV is simply just backing the decision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for us, there are, I think, especially if we look at the engineers at our end, um, it doesn't actually matter the education. Sure, if you've got a PhD in machine learning i mean that's probably going to get you somewhere but at the same <laughs> yeah. time if you have almost no qualifications except you're just a talented programmer we, you, you're still good it yeah. is this and this is the wonderful thing about living in this age that we live in now is that i think that you could learn anything you want on the internet now uh and and that's what's fantastic um from whether or not you want to start automating stuff for your business or whether or not you want to learn i don't know russian or chinese or or the opposite way if you want to learn English, it's all there for you to be able to do. Um, you just got to go out there and, and start doing it. And for those people, 
who would worry about the future of jobs and technology and what would they do. Reskilling is unlimited for free on the internet. YouTube is a wonderful place. You know, KhanAcademy.com. Great, yeah. right? Um, not many adults our age would, I suppose, would come across Khan Academy. It's a, it's a, it's basically a free platform to learn. It's fantastic um, platform, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like science and mathematics based uh, stuff. I spent a long time on on Khan Academy when I had a, a, a whole thing into machine learning a couple of years ago when I was trying to really work out the, the as many of the intricacies as I could, uh, and then came across the. <laughs> came yeah. came across the uh the reality of okay you just need to be really good at maths uh so you <laughs> yeah, know and, and having exactly, to go through <laughs> exactly yeah the uh the barrier to entry is how much you like math <laughs> for sure yeah right because you, you in machine learning especially you start you go okay wow that's really cool look what i've done and you think well how does how does that work and then you look a bit deep because you can if for those who haven't done it you can you can basically with python which is the programming language you can basically load up what called packages if it's the best word to use for it i suppose um which will allow you straight out of the box to feed it what isn't not easy but for someone who is a, an engineer or developer it, it doesn't feel onerous or massively complex and it will yeah. just spit it out the other end and you say wow that's so cool and look look what we did and oh, aren't we smart and then someone says well maybe we want to do it in a slightly different way and you think, oh we'd have to probably remake this this package that we use and how does that all work and you go oh okay oh wow okay yeah Oof, this is this is extreme yeah, yeah the canned <laughs> models are fantastic and then the yeah, moment that yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. reshape the can you're like oh good golly this is not yeah, good yeah. okay advanced calculus day one uh yeah, yeah. so it's <laughs> i should i now realize it's i used to always joke right you know you'd, somebody actually tweeted for a long time and it was something that was like you know 4222 days that i have not needed the pythagorean theorem you know in human in life yeah but like the that calculus and uh, differential mathematics i'm like ah, i probably should have hung around that class a little longer <laughs> now when yeah, it comes to machine learning yeah look no i don't think machine learning is a, is a funny one it's one of those things that you see a lot of new software that comes out and, and i don't know vc circles are always saying oh, yeah you know is, is ai powered and all this stuff and a lot of the time you have to read between the lines on this stuff and AIs and machine learning in most cases probably just not needed. Um, yeah, yeah. You might just need a couple of if this, then that type of logical conditions in it. So or for there's, there's a lot that can be done in, you know, business and business process automation without that type of stuff. Um, you know, if you really, really want to get into the weeds and start doing stuff like that, then you can, but, will the benefit outweigh the cost i'm unsure on that because by the time you finished it the business has already moved on and there's a whole nother process now that wouldn't even look like it did originally right and you're years down the line um probably not worth it yeah it's uh there's for us the curiosity of the method uh is more important for the future of the use of that method but yeah, spending all your effort on it uh, can be a painful thing. Well, this has been fantastic, yeah. Daniel. I uh, I could definitely do this all day. And for people that do want to be able to tap into what you and the team are doing with Lolly, uh, what's the best way that they can reach out and find out more? And of course, we'll have links because the book, it is called Upgrade, 
the lightning fast path to productivity and automation in business by the one and only Daniel Cooper. Uh, so that'll be coming out any moment now. By the time people are listening to this, it will be published. Uh, so I'll have links to the Amazon links and such, but uh, lolly.co and, and where do we find you uh, if they want to reach out? Sure. So uh, as you said, it's lolly.co, the website. You can reach me on Twitter at I'm Daniel Cooper. Um, or you're more than welcome to to shoot me an email if you want at daniel.cooper at lolly.co. Excellent. Excellent. Perfect. Well, Daniel, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. You. And uh, folks, there you go. Automate the good stuff and uh, you know, automate the mundane stuff. And, you know, and you'll realize it's a, a fantastic world waits on the other side where you can enjoy Bitcoin. You can enjoy all sorts of exciting stuff that you can invest your time in. You know, you can't spend time on Khan Academy when you're wasting it away, you know, printing out <laughs> spreadsheets. <laughs> That's right. That's right. right. I'm going to go and have a non-automated dinner now. That I there you go. Exactly. Time, right? <laughs> Thanks very much. All right. Thanks.